Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, if you haven't already, turn to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. And um, I'm going to read the entire psalm and then we'll get into commentary. So it says it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have seen, so we have, as we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. In the midst of your temple, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Take a walk around Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. And you might have a, another translation that says even to forever or eternity or something like that there uh, at the end. What does the King James say there? Death? A God even to death? Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about that as we go along. Well, the heading lets us know we have another song sung by the sons of Korah written and to be performed in temple worship. And, of course, we remember that the sons of Korah were temple praise leaders from among the Levites, appointed first by David and then spanning the generation. So when you see something's by the sons of Korah, it doesn't necessarily tell us whether it's from the days of David or in the generations after that, because like Asaph and sons, the sons of Korah were uh, you know, ongoing over the generations in leading worship. Um, so... I bet you that if Israel was able to reestablish temple worship tomorrow, uh, they'd be looking for sons of Korah to be among their praise leaders because there was kind of a genealogical connection, you know, with ones that went before, as we see in the days of Nehemiah. Uh, But Psalm 47, when we look at that, it was several weeks ago now because of the Christmas uh, break and stuff, but Psalm 47 praised the God of Zion, and Psalm 48 follows it by celebrating the Zion of God. And so they kind of go together in a neat and wonderful way. You can see them kind of being part of the worship schedule there at the temple in the days after um, Solomon built the temple. David got the sons of Korah ready, and they probably began writing and singing. And then they were ready when the temple was established. They were ready when it was reestablished. Psalm 47 called Israel to praise God when his name is brought up. It called us to praise God when we consider his deeds. 
Psalm 48 reminded Israel to honor the city where God has chosen for Israel to gather to worship, and that's Jerusalem. And so in the days of the wilderness, they'd pack up the tabernacle and they'd go to the next place while they're on their way to the promised land. They'd reconstruct it. Uh, Has anybody looked in the book of Numbers uh, and seen the number of times Israel moved over 40 years? The, the data is there, and it winds up being 40 times in 40 years. So uh, it was an average of about once a year. They packed the whole thing up, moved 600,000 men and all the women and children that were part of that too, and they went on to the next place and uh, put the thing back together, and God provided the manna and the quail and those kind of things. Um, but uh, So Zion makes us think of not only the physical... Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem to come. Think about all the great Christian hymns, right? We're marching to Zion, and by that we mean the heavenly uh, Jerusalem. We're making, uh, you know, uh, we're we're making our way to God's city. Um, I have no problem using that term Zionist and calling myself a Zionist. Uh, You say, well, Danny, what's a Zionist? A Zionist in our day, in the last 300 years, has been those that believe that not only do the Jewish people deserve a homeland uh, on earth, but that it should be right where it is, uh, land Jewish people have more historic claim to than any other people, uh, and Jerusalem is its capital. So if you believe there should be a home for Jewish people, and the most logical place for that to be is where they've got historic claim to, you're a Zionist too. You might be a Zionist if, you know. And uh, so um, I don't have any problem calling myself that. Psalm 48 celebrates Jerusalem as Israel's capital and the key city of God's dealing with mankind on earth. But don't miss the key to what makes it special is God who will be glorified on the earth. So even though this celebrates the city, it's celebrating the God of the city and the fact that what makes it special is that God has uh, made it the capital for his chosen people and the place where the temple is. And I thought about that, you know. Um, I really like the Tabernacle, 1978 South Boston Road. Some of you have fond memories of being over on Thomas Street in the White Building. I don't know if anybody here goes back to the White Building, but then the Brick Building, you know, and all those things. And then in 1972, coming over here and that sort of thing. Uh, Our place of worship is special, but why is it special? Because the God of our worship is so wonderful and awe-inspiring. Amen? Mm-hmm. Um, some have suggested from verses 4 and 5, we'll look more at this in a minute, that it may have been written to celebrate the salvation of the city of Jerusalem from Sennacherib's invasion in 701 B.C. He had, uh, they'd already taken, Assyria had already taken the northern part, they'd circled the rest of Judah, and they were coming after Jerusalem, and God miraculously uh, dispelled them. And so we'll look more at those nuts and bolts in verses 4 and 5. Brother Mike? You said something like, uh, why is God so special just a second ago? Yeah. Well, when we were studying Genesis, we would we would laugh about this, but it was true, too. Why is God so awesome? And the response we would all have is because he created the universe out of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> ex nihilo, right? They, yeah. yeah, ex, yeah the ex Latin nihilo. phrase, ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. He spoke, it was so, it was good, and uh, and he kept going. Uh And we'll look at it too, but others have suggested from verses 12 and 13 that the psalm celebrates the rebuilding of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. So both those are on the table. 
but uh, we'll look, and I'm not sure we get an exact answer, but let's look down through the verses now. Verses 1 through 3, God and his city are put there for the entire earth's joy. I love this. It says, great is the Lord, verses verses 1 and 2, greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, there it is, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And there's obviously a double play there, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, but also uh, the king of kings, the Lord himself. Now, what happens when you go up on a mountaintop? Why is it special to be at the top of a mountain? The view. The view. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, uh, all through, when you go into Chattanooga, all kinds of signs says what? Sea Rock City. You can go up there and see seven states. Now, I've been up there several times. I've never seen seven states, but they tell you which ones you could see if it was a clear enough day. And I don't know if there's been a clear enough day in a long time. But, uh, you know, when you're up there, you get perspective. And if you're especially at the right kind of mountaintop, you can see in every direction and different things. And so wherever a person lives on earth, even when they're in places of higher elevation than Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, to go up to Jerusalem is to go up to the ultimate, there's your fill in the blank, the ultimate mountain from which everything else makes sense. Um, and so uh, when we get to further down in the Psalms, we're going to see the Psalms of Ascent. And I believe it's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, if I'm not mistaken. So right after long Psalm 119 or 15 short Psalms, and each one is what we call a Psalm of Ascent. And Ascent means going up. And what they are celebrating is going up to the uh, city of Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God. And you may know that on the way, think of the festive pilgrims, they'll sing Psalm 120, and then Psalm 121, and then Psalm 122. They'll sing them all the way there and all the way back. Because spiritually speaking, even if they came from a higher elevation, they're going up to Jerusalem. I think of um, the lady that came to Solomon in his day. Do you remember her? Uh, title who came to see Solomon to the queen of Sheba yeah very good star of the day for Bev over there Uh, we got it queen of Sheba Uh, and we're told in the text and it's not too long after second chronicles uh, the dedication of the temple you know so in chapter six Solomon says Lord when your people get in a bind and they humble themselves and turn to you won't you hear them and heal them and, and, and save them and in Second Chronicles 7, God says, Solomon's words back to him. If my people, I mean, everything he says there, Solomon had asked. He said, okay, I'll do that. You, you humble yourselves and pray when you're in a bind. I'll hear and I'll heal. Uh, if you turn, I'll, I'll turn, you know, I'll, I'll draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Well, just a couple chapters later, it's 9, 10, 11 in there, I believe. Uh, it, we read of the Queen of Sheba coming from Africa to uh, Israel to Jerusalem, the capital, talking to Solomon because she'd heard. And so, uh, you know, Solomon, one of the things he had prayed is when foreigners who aren't of your people, Israel, hear how great you are, and they come here asking, what's the deal with Yahweh worship and this country and stuff? He says, when they come, when they ascend, when they come up to Jerusalem, uh, then won't you heal, hear, heal, and uh, forgive? And she apparently did that. Jesus indicated that she had. Um, and so Jerusalem is only about 2,500 feet above sea level, and it's actually a tad in the shadow of the Mount of Olives, which rises 100 feet higher. 
which is interesting, isn't it? Uh, that makes we as believers think about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins at the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary, and it was from the Mount of Olives he ascended back to heaven. And Zechariah's great prophecy that one day he's going to return and uh, rule and reign over the earth from Jerusalem after he tells his enemies to drop dead, uh, which is pretty cool, right? So we believe the rapture will be before that. He'll rapture the church up and then seven years or so later come back and uh, come down and we'll hold the camcorders uh, on our white horses while he rides his down and says drop dead or whatever he says. He speaks the word and all there is going to dissolve. You know, it's going to be a lot of blood. Uh, but uh, we don't have to fight to make that happen. Um, but look at verse 3. God is in her palaces, the palaces of Jerusalem. He is known as her refuge. And so the sons of Korah praise God for how he has worked in Jerusalem, but they're also careful to point out in their song that God is ultimately the refuge of those who dwell in Jerusalem. The place is special, but God is the one we praise. And, of course, our buildings here at the Baptist Tabernacle are special, but God is the one we praise. And so we want to always make it about him. He, uh, he let us build it. He can take it away. You know, we want to serve God in our generation, set up the next generation for success. And, uh, you know, but we realize we're the church 24-7, uh, 365. Uh, this is a leap year, so 376. <laughs> but... Uh, God works when we gather. God works when we scatter. God works when we're doing things locally. He works when we're doing things globally. And he is good. So the next uh, verses, 4 through 8, remembering when God miraculously delivered Israel. So this is really something here. Kind of he sets it up for us here. Verses 4 and 5, he says, For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. And in this case, they're not coming to worship. It's pretty clear he means they're coming to try to take over uh, this choice spot. You know, Israel is at the crossroads of three continents, right? So it is where Africa and Europe and Asia come together in that land bridge. And a lot of conquerors over the years have said that'd be a good place for us to have. And to have that is usually to have Jerusalem too, if you conquer it all. And we know from Daniel's prophecy uh, that because of Israel, uh, you know, uh, not serving God in their generation, then he still has purposes and plans for Israel. And yet Daniel foresaw from Babylon that there would be a time of Babylonian occupation and then Persian occupation, then Greek occupation, then Roman occupation. But God would do a new thing in the end of days. And um, so it says they passed by together. They saw it. And so they marveled. But then quickly it says they were troubled and they ran away. Run away! <laughs> it says they hastened away. So the sons of Korah remember a time that pagan kings assembled against Jerusalem to take it. And yet somehow they were troubled and they hastened away. And one of the biggest times this happened is actually told in three different places in the scripture. You know, the Gospels is the most important thing. It's repeated four times. But uh, Deuteronomy retells the story of the law because... You know, so that's twice told, and sometimes Leviticus numbers throw in a third telling of some of the Ten Commandments stuff. That's how important it is. First uh, and Second Kings is retold in First and Second Chronicles from a Judah-centric point of perspective. It's so important it's told a second time. But uh, the story of um, God's dealing in Hezekiah's days is so important that it also gets into Isaiah at the critical. Uh, juncture of the 
uh, first 39 chapters and the second 27 chapters. Isaiah is so cool, 66 chapters, and it winds up like the 39 Old Testament books, a lot of judgment of those who mess with Israel uh, with some beautiful promises for the future thrown in, and then the great things of the second half that make us think more New Testament themes such as Christ dying for our sins, um, the uh, beautiful time to come of the millennial rule and the new earth to come one day. Um, but so Genesis 36 through 30, I mean, Isaiah 36 through 39 also tells the story of a key time where the king of Assyria, who had already conquered the north of Israel, surrendered uh, Jerusalem, surrounded Jerusalem to take it. It's worth reading. We've got the time. So turn into Isaiah 36 and 37. Don actually mentioned uh, the time Hezekiah was sick and asked God for more time, and God granted it. So Isaiah 36, um, going to read starting in verse 1. It came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leads, leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust in him. Assyria is saying, we're going to take out Egypt. Don't trust in them, king. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your port to put, put riders on them. <laughs> so he's taunting them, you know. Just go ahead and be our vassal state. We'll give you horses to ride. You can't, you probably don't have enough men to put on them. Uh, how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Elikam, Shebna, and Joash said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. <laughs> oh, so listen, all our people can hear you talking. <laughs> Just talk to us in the, in the trade language instead because uh, you're going to scare our people. And Rabshakeh is saying, I want to scare your people. <laughs> so he said, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words, not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, if you try to fight back, we're going to surround you and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to survive on your own stuff, you know. Uh, and it's going to run out from out in the fields, and you'll be, uh, you know, well, you can, you can figure it out in verse 12. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, 
and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present. Come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the waters of a own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. <laughs> and then he says this. He's mocking God here. He says, Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? We whoop them. Where are the gods of Seraphim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Don't answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, all of them came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Chapter 37, here's a godly king. So it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he, he didn't send a cable uh, or an email down to Egypt. Help, help, help. <laughs> uh, he didn't reevaluate whether on paper they could fight against this murderous horde. This is the same, of course, ones that Jonah was concerned about for their fierceness, their wickedness. In the days of Jonah, they did repent. A hundred years later, as in the days of Nahum, they did not. Nahum pronounced judgment on them. In the meantime, they wanted to pick on, they took the north, and they wanted to take Jerusalem too. So they took the north in 722. This is 701, just 20 years later. Um, verse 2, Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, so here's Isaiah coming into the story, and they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him. Now, now note this connection with the psalm. I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them, and you, shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those who my fathers have destroyed? Gozen and Haran and Rezep and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city? of Seraphim, Hena, and Iva. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. 
and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kings on the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. And then there's those great words that come in uh, through verse 35. But look at verse 36. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people rose early in the morning, there were corpses. There were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sherazar struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. And Judah never did fall to Assyria. Now later, because they were under God's judgment, they did fall to Babylon. But uh, presumably, had they been serving God in that generation, they'd been protected then too. So, what a marvelous deliverance. And somehow in Psalm 48, it's celebrating a time of deliverance. There was also a pretty cool one in the days of Jehoshaphat, you know, and other times uh, too. But that's a pretty remarkable one there. Anybody else have anything else to say about that? Can you think of another time that uh, may have been, uh, they might be talking about there when, as it says in verse um, Six, fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pains. They were troubled, they hastened away, verse 5 says. Anybody have any thoughts there? Again, verses 6 and 7, right? It kind of shows the aftermath of God's special deliverance. Fear took hold of them, and then two poignant uh, things pictured. Pain as of a woman in birth pangs. And as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So the enemy is shown being all of a sudden seized with pain, the way birth pangs seize a pregnant woman. Some of you have been there and can relate to that, you know. Um, and then the second illustration, they became like ships broken by strong winds that are now helpless before the power of the wind. And, uh, you know, uh, when you look at the... Um, track record of old Sennacherib and how he was just mowing opponents down and getting victories left and right. It's kind of like the Harlem Globetrotters playing the Washington Generals. 99.99.999% of the time, the Harlem Globetrotters win, right? In fact, I think they say in all the years, the Washington Generals won one of those games, you know? And I'm not sure what was happening there. It must have been somebody's birthday or something. But uh, God uh, did a great, miraculous deliverance in Hezekiah's day because they submitted and trusted the Lord. Um, this reference to ships broken by strong winds that are now helpless before the power wind, it made me think of John 3. Um, I think we ought to think on what Jesus said in John 3 more when he's talking to Nicodemus and talking about the ways of the Lord and how all of a sudden uh, God's activity kicks up, you know. And um, he compared it to the wind going through trees, right? The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Um, you see the branches flowing, and you know the wind's what's pushing them, but you don't physically see the wind. You just know it's happening. And, um, you know, sometimes we sense that when we're in a worship service together. Other times we sense that when we're on a mission trip together or when we're uh, having a special talk with somebody in our family or somebody else, you know, and the Holy Spirit's dealing with them towards salvation. What a great thing it is when we get to lead somebody to Jesus. Um, but in John 3, Jesus said, you see the impact the wind has, but not the wind. And Israel knew the only explanation for their enemy's fear was the movement of their unseen but ever-present God. 
And so here's Sennacherib, 185,000 troops. They wind up killing each other. The angel of the Lord kills them, right? And in Jehoshaphat's story, um, they send the choir out first and the people in a spirit of confusion turn in on each other, which is a great story also. I love the Jehoshaphat one. Our unseen but ever-present God. And as you spend more time with the Lord, um, you learn to be more in tune to God the Holy Spirit. Now, everything needs to be tested with the Word itself. And so every once in a while somebody will say, well, God told me to tell you. And, uh, well, you got to be careful there. You know, uh, God usually uh, you know, tells you what to do, <laughs> you know, gives you an impression about it, and then you encourage others as you're uh, sensing that God may be calling them the minister or something like that. You want to be very careful. Uh, and I, I've seen people get a little confused and a little jacked up and they start twisting Bible stories into their words to other people about words that they have for them. And if you don't do this, you're going to get eaten with tumors. And I'm pretty sure you're talking about Herod there, not me, you know. Uh, so careful, buddy, careful. But it is true, Henry Blackaby wrote Experiencing God, and he said we want to look to see where God's at work and join him in what he's doing. And he really does line things up. He does impress on us that we need to call somebody or go visit them or talk to them. And uh, I, I've said it, and it's true, the secret of victory in the Christian life is saying yes to God, the Holy Spirit, one decision at a time. And I think we want to see God's hand in opening and closing doors, and we want to submit things to him to take care of. Hezekiah, he couldn't do anything. He said, Lord, you're going to have to do it. In Jehoshaphat's day, he said, Lord, we don't know what to do. How'd you like to hear the king who's supposed to lead you say, Lord, honestly, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, right? And so there's times like that, and you want to, during those times, not act rashly, you want to uh, wait on the Lord. You want to be still and know that he's God. And um, they are celebrating that Jerusalem had that kind of God in these verses. Look at verse 8. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts and the city of our God, God will establish it forever. And then the one that means stop, meditate, selah. Stop and think about how God will take care of us when we seek him with all of our heart. We saw his deliverance in days of old when Hezekiah led us to trust God. We've also seen days when we were defeated and exiled because we turned from God. And here's where I put this extra note here. God is the source of deliverance for his people, but he's also a greater threat to our temporary prospering than all of our enemies. Because, yeah, they're celebrating a previous deliverance for God's people. But what did it take to take Judah down? What did it take to take Jerusalem down? God's people in sin. What enemies from without could not do, God allowed enemies from without to do because of the people's sin. And Jeremiah lays it to him on that. This is happening because we didn't honor God. We didn't do what he said. And I think about America right now. Um, as Christians, we're, we're concerned rightly about a lot of the thermometer issues, the thermometer issues, you know, uh, the, 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 the value of pro-life, you know, uh, we're going to celebrate pro-life a lot this month, you know, and have the transition lady come and give a testimony um, and give them a nice $10,000 check from the Christmas offering. Um, we are concerned about, uh, you know, Supreme Court saying uh, marriage can be something that it's not. 
that two men or two women can be married. That's not marriage. Marriage is man, woman, period. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Anything else is a man-made concoction, right, that needs to be repented of. So you, that's an example, you know, and so many other things. Um, but uh, for people that love the Lord, their greatest threat is not from without. It is from departing from that beautiful love for the Lord and reliance on Him. And so we always need to be most concerned with what he thinks and sing the song, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in need of prayer. It's us, it's us, it's us, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Paul says it like that, doesn't he? Where does judgment begin? With the house of God, with us first, Lord. Uh, you know, and so I sometimes ask myself the question, uh, if revival in America that I desperately want to see happen before I die, I want to see another big movement of God, a great awakening, you know. But if it, if it came down to how I'm seeking God and repenting and living, would it come? You know? And if we can just each ask that, you know, we'll experience a mini blessing ourselves, you know, as we're putting ourselves in position um, and, uh, and interceding for Him. So... Verses 9 through 14, getting back to celebrating Jerusalem. God is the guide we must always turn back to. There's a sense in here, I think, of a little bit of what I'm talking about here as he meditates in these last verses on that uh, God is the one who it, it keeps us safe and secure, so let's keep thinking on him. God is the guide we must always turn back to. Look at verse 9. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. Hey, there's my word again. Those who have been with me any amount of time know that that word loving kindness is the word kased. So it's faithful love. It's steadfast love. If you've got a different translation, sometimes translated mercy, King James many times, mercy or loving kindness. Uh, but uh, the ESV is always steadfast love. Holman is always faithful love there. We have thought, O oh God, on your faithful love in the midst of your temple. Um, look at verse 10. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. So all the way back to Genesis 12, we see that Israel is blessed to be a blessing. And I love how the Psalms appreciate that Jerusalem was not there only to be a blessing to Jewish folks, but also so that the ends of the earth would praise the Lord. So verse 10, according to your name, O Lord, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. You have brought us here to Jerusalem to worship you, but this is for everybody. What was Abraham told? You are blessed, and I'm going to bless all the nations through your seed. Um, and we have to remember that, you know, especially when we're talking to people about why is Israel special? And it's like, well, God had a special plan and his purpose for Israel, and he plans to have a special reward for Israel in the future and things. But it's very clear the whole thing was the same thing that he says to churches, you know, and that is Israel's put here to be a place that honors and glorifies God. So the nations will say, we want to know Israel's God. And the church is not only put here to do that, we're all supposed to go out, you know, and make his name known. And so if indeed the Old Testament was more being drawn in to hear about God, the gospel sends us out, of course, to everywhere to talk about God. John Piper, he wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And he says, I'm not sure anybody read past the first line, but everybody read the first line. And the first line of his book says, missions is not the main purpose of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. He said that line really resonated with people. 
And I can tell you there are hundreds, if not thousands, of missionaries that that book influenced them uh, to go out and be missionaries for the Lord. And I've met some of them, you know. Uh, and John Piper was laughing about that one time, talking about it. But it's a great phrase, isn't it? You know, uh, we believe one of our chief purposes is to get the gospel to our community and into the entire world because of the Great Commission. But there's a reason we do that, because there are places where people are worshiping sticks and bricks and stupid stuff and each other and ancestors, and, you know, those things. And they don't get that, you know, God created them. They don't get he's got a purpose and plan. They don't get that he's acted in time to show his love for them. And so, you know, we do missions because we want to see the promise fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled that there will be people from every single uh, people group in heaven. It's one of the reasons why we talk so much about missions, you know, and supporting. Think about those people, the Ambrosiuses. They were in your class, weren't they, Gary? Then they were in the church too, and they're still they're finishing up now. You know, they're just helping a little bit more, getting some more things done. Uh, the work will continue on if they both went to heaven tomorrow, but we're going to support them as they continue to do things here. They're doing it from Alabama now and going over there just a little bit. But um, they went to an unreached people group, loved those people, saw some of them saved, learned their language, gave them the Bible in their language, New Testament, later gave them the Old Testament. As people were saved, they baptized them and trained them. And now there are, I think they said, you know, scores of churches and thousands of believers. And that's just one story. There's a people group that went from unreached, which is less than 2% Bible-believing Christians, to reach, they're more than that now, because they gave their efforts there. I've got a buddy named John. I can't tell you his last name because he doesn't want any record of it being kept and stuff, but he went to uh, Western China and did the same thing for a people group there now and now helps Southern Baptists uh, reach out to even more tribal groups, uh, which is so, so cool. Um, so look at verse 11. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Let Mount Zion rejoice in the God of Jerusalem. Let Jews be glad. Voice God's praise to the ends of the earth. So the joy of the entire earth is based here so we can send forth our God's praises to those who need to worship our God. Verses 12 and 13, he gets real poetic with it. Go ahead and take a walk around Zion. Go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation file. Go ahead, walk around the tabernacle, you know. See the youth being instructed in the word of life material. See the children being instructed in the Iwana thing. See the bus coming in to bring children from an uh, impoverished neighborhood over here to get it. Look over here, look at the media equipment because we're live streaming and some people are watching in other places when we have our services. Look at the choir working extra hard to praise and even remember a dear brother and sing at his funeral who uh, died in the service and things like that. Look at the TLC and the instruction for 30-something years. Uh, think about the Christmas offering and the thermometer that goes up and all the different ways missions is supported and how we are about Christian education here and around in so many different ways. Walk about Zion, go all around her, that you may tell it to the generation following. Now earlier I said some scholars thought this psalm uh, may commemorate the rededication of Jerusalem's walls under Nehemiah. You can turn to Nehemiah 12 if you like. Uh, I'm going to read 
all of verse 27 and then portions of uh, 28 and 29. But listen to what later Nehemiah says. It says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. So they said, wait a second, if we're going to get temple worship going right again, we got to find some of the Levites, like the sons of Korah, like Asaph and sons and those guys. We got to get the band back together, Donnie. We got to get the band back together. And, and, and then it says, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. They're like, so this may have been written later, you know, after Jerusalem fell, and then they got to go back. So this might be to commemorate uh, in Nehemiah's time them going back. But think about what Nehemiah says there. It says the ones who would lead Israel in singing at the temple hadn't left the area. They're like, one day the temple's going to be rebuilt. One day... The walls are going to be around the city. We're going to have to get the band back together and sing and play and all those different things. And I just think about the foresight and the faith they had to do that. God will be true to his promises. So now, if Psalm 48 was back from earlier days, they're using it as a God told us it's going to happen. We know why we lost it because, uh, you know... Um, we know why we lost it, because we disobeyed God and he, he punished us. But uh, his praise will happen again, and we want to be ready to praise. Um, so singers like the sons of Korah had stayed as close to Jerusalem as they could, waiting for the days to come when they would again be called, there's your fill in the blank, called upon to lead out in the singing of praises to our great God in the city of God. And that brings us to the last verse, verse 14. For this is our God our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. And as I alluded to earlier, you know, you got Hebrew words here. You're trying to bring them into English. Death is probably not an adequate translation for the last word in verse 14. Most modern translations go ahead and put the word forever or eternity there, eternity or forever. And that is how the Greek Septuagint translated it. Just a reminder, the Greek Septuagint was the full translation from Hebrew to Greek before Jesus even came. So the Bible was already in, the Old Testament was in two languages before Jesus came in the scrolls. And uh, the Greek definitely saw that as eternity. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because we know that Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms, has a lot of parallelism in it. And since the first part says that uh, this is our God, our God forever and ever, he will be our guide even to just death. No, it's the word is really eternity or forever. I love that, don't you? It makes me swell with the right kind of pride when I think about how great our God is and will be forever and ever. He's the God of me. He's the God of you. He's the God of Virginia, the God of Florida, God of Israel, God of Jerusalem, God of the church, God of the Baptist tabernacle, God of eternity. And we will praise him. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. 
To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.